would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to Judges chapter 3. If you're using your pew Bible, it's page 202. Uh, Judges 3, we'll be uh, considering together verses 12 through 30. Let's hear now from God's Word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Girah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. He who had escaped while well, they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sira. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Now this story of Ehud and Eglon is among the most graphic accounts that you come across in the book of Judges. And that's saying quite a lot, I think, because the book of Judges contains some of the most disturbing and raw narratives in the Bible. This truly is a dark time for God's people, the children of Israel. Now, this is one of those stories that, you know, you read it as a child and you absolutely love it. You love the blood and the guts. You love the details that really make the text come alive. 
But in your adult years, it can be one of those texts that can be troubling. You might wonder, what are we supposed to do with a text like this? What are we supposed to do with its graphic nature? What are we supposed to do with its God-appointed brutality? It might make us a bit uncomfortable. Now, one of the things that can sometimes be tricky with Hebrew narrative is that we're not always told how, we're not always told explicitly how we should interpret historical data as it's recorded for us. Yet Hebrew narrative is theologically selective. You can tell from this passage as you read through it that there are a number of things that are left out that you might wish were included. At the same time, there are details that are included that make you wonder, why? The point is, the things that are included in the story are there for rich theological reasons. And that's one of the things that, Lord willing, we'll unpack a bit as we go through this text tonight. Now, if we back up for just a moment, I think it's helpful for us to remember the pattern that we come across as we go through the book of Judges. Not only do we see this cycle, but we really see a downward spiral as we move throughout the book. Israel goes through this pattern of rebellion against their covenant Lord. God chastises his people. His anger is aroused against them. And then he sends retribution against them as he hands them over into some of their surrounding uh, enemies. A foreign power is sent ultimately to wake them up to their foolishness. Then as they are under the oppression of some foreign dominion, the children of Israel cry out to the Lord for deliverance. The Lord then in his goodness raises up a judge. It's a God-appointed deliverer. There is then deliverance. And the children of Israel have a time of peace. But then, of course, that judge dies. The time of peace never lasts. And that pattern repeats itself. A pattern, again, that gets progressively worse as the book progresses. This is a pattern that is clear in our text this evening. And so to start with, what are the facts? Our first point here. What exactly is going on in this narrative? Well, if we were to back up to verse 11... Othniel, the first judge from the tribe of Judah, dies. And true to this pattern, the children of Israel forsake the Lord, their covenant God, in exchange for worship. And so right from the beginning, what we see is a principle that is abundantly at work throughout the pages of Scripture. Man is a worshiping being. And he will either worship and serve the Lord God, his creator, and the one who has sent his son to redeem, or he will exchange that worship for false worship, for idolatry, the worship of something man-made instead. And then what we see in the text is divine retribution. It is the Lord who acts against His people, bringing judgment and discipline, raising up their neighbors to deliver them. Look again at verse 12. The people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and so He raises up Eglon of Moab. And in case you missed it, because they had done what was evil in his sight. Now the land of Moab, Ammon, and Amalek would all have been to the south and the southeast of the boundaries of the land of promise, just beyond the Dead Sea. And so these neighboring people groups under the providence of God's arm come and take possession of this southern portion of Israel, taking control of that section of the land of promise. And then we read in verse 13 that they occupy the city of Palms, which would have been Jericho or an area nearby Jericho. 
And for 18 years, the people of Israel are subject to the, to the dominion of Eglon of Moab. Now, throughout this cycle of judges, if you read through the book, it's not always clear how long it takes the children of Israel to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. But here we can't help but wonder, why did it take them 18 long years to cry out to the Lord? We don't have the answer to that, but when the people finally do cry out, even though the Lord knows it's not going to be lasting repentance, even though He knows it's going to be a pattern, again, that repeats itself in His grace, in His kindness, true to His covenant word, He delivers. And so the Lord raises up Ehud to act as a deliverer, just as He strengthened Moab, Eglon the king of Moab, to be victorious. Now He provides a deliverer from that oppression. And so the Lord raises up this man Ehud of the tribe of Benjamin. Now most of our English translations read that Ehud was a left-handed man. But more literally, he is a man who is impeded in his right side. There are some who speculate that Ehud was this ambidextrous soldier, this sort of this black ops guy who could, who just very, uh, you know, very craftily worked his way into the inner chamber But I think everything from the text clearly indicates that Ehud is suffering from either some sort of paralysis or crippling of his right hand. And so he was left-handed out of necessity. Maybe he was born this way. Maybe he was injured. We don't know. But clearly, it was a handicap that enabled him to enter into the presence of the king. And just like a good drama... If you were to watch a drama on television and you were to watch the assassin as he makes there in his, in his garage at his desk, you know, he makes his weapon that he's going to use for his assassination. You can picture Ehud there in verse 16 with his one good hand meticulously making his own weapon for this one act. He forges a double-edged sword just the right size, 18 inches, to fit under his garment on one side on his leg opposite of where a weapon would normally be carried. You you could picture an able-bodied soldier reaching with his right hand to his left as he drew his weapon into battle. But Ehud there fastening that sword on his right thigh, a place where it wouldn't obviously be expected. And so the people of Israel, you see, they bring tribute to Eglon as an acknowledgement of their servitude to him. Perhaps this tribute that is brought to him took the the form of rich food and a great quantity of food, contributing to the girth of Eglon. He's fattening himself up, isn't he, off of the labors of the children of Israel. And then when we get to verse 17, the narrative slows down to give us great detail of what unfolds. Ehud sends his fellow Israelites, the ones who helped him carry the tribute, he sends them back to their land, back home, while he says to the king, I have a message for you. It's a secret message. It's a message just for you, O king. Tantalizing words. Words that are meant to be deceptive. Words that are meant to feed the fat king's ego even more. And so here stands Ehud with his crippled or withered hand, posing no threat to the king. Even the king's bodyguards are absolutely clueless. They don't even bother to check for weapons. They are naive, just like their leader is. And so they leave Ehud alone with the king. And so then Ehud approaches the king in the the cool of this inner chamber. And he says, here is my message. It's not just a message for me, 
but it is a message from God. It is a divine message. And Eglon, no doubt in his pride, stands to receive the message from God, leaving his giant belly wide open, almost like a giant target, defenseless, making him the easiest target conceivable. And Ehud delivers this message from the Lord as he reaches for the dagger under his cloak where it has been strapped to his thigh. And with one swift, lethal thrust, it sinks into the giant belly of Eglon. And so the sword becomes the message itself, a message of judgment against this fat, foolish ruler. And it's a message for God's people, too, a message of deliverance for the children of Israel a message of victory, a message of release from bondage. And you can picture Eglon as he's gasping with his last bit of air within his lungs, trying to reach the sword to pull it out, but the fat within his belly is closed in around the hilt, and his bowels spill out onto the floor. Ehud then quietly slips away, locking the door behind him. And every moment that the servants of the king delay is another moment that Ehud, the assassin, gets further and further from their grasp. And then not only the locked door, but undoubtedly the smell of their master's bowels upon the floor lead them to believe that he's relieving himself. And so they wait, and they wait, and they wait to the point of embarrassment. And finally, when they do enter this inner chamber, there is their king, There is their glorious, powerful leader literally strewn across the floor. Meanwhile, Ehud is sounding the trumpet to rally the troops of Israel. And he leads them just to the west side of the Jordan River, to the forge, to the place where, as the Moabite soldiers were fleeing back to their land, they would have had to cross at this one strategic location. And it's there that the Israelites wait for them with sword in hand. And Ehud and his fellow Israelites cut them off and slaughter some 10,000 of these Moabite soldiers. And then as the narrative closes, the land of Israel has peace for two generations, for 80 years. So that's the story here in Judges 3. But what are we to make of it? And that's our second point this evening, the unexpected elements of this story. And there are a number of things that are unexpected in this narrative. First is the unexpected source of trouble for Israel. The Moabites and the Ammonites, if you'll remember, are the descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. It was Lot when he fled into the mountains that his daughters got him drunk and engaged in a incestuous relationship and gave birth to Moab and Ammon. But these are not people who are natural enemies of the Israelites. And so they would not have anticipated trouble from them. Of course, the text indicates clearly that it is the Lord who uses these distant relatives of Israel as an instrument of punishment because of their covenant unfaithfulness to God. And as Israel is defeated, it's the city of Palms, it's the city of Jericho that falls into the hands of Moab. Now, this is significant because Jericho, if you'll remember, was that first city where the Israelites had victory as they came across the Jordan River. It was those impenetrable walls that they simply walked around that fell before them, fell before them as the Lord gave them great victory. And it's a sign, I believe, of, of God's judgment upon them that because of their failure to worship the Lord, this city is given to foreign occupation. 
And we read in Joshua chapter 6 that anyone who rebuilds this city faces the judgment of God, something that becomes true in Eglon's life 18 years later. We don't have explicit information here, but whether he rebuilds the city or whether he's living on the outskirts of the destroyed city, when the time comes, he receives judgment that is due to him because of his own false worship. Now, the second thing that is unexpected in this narrative is the judge himself, the one who becomes the deliverer of Israel from their misery. You might remember some time ago we considered Othniel, that first judge that the Lord raised up to deliver his people from captivity or from oppression. And Othniel was from the tribe of Judah. He was sort of the paradigm of what a judge was supposed to be like. Not only from a great tribe, but one who married great stock. He was from the family of Caleb. He is filled with the Spirit of God, and he achieves decisive victory as the people rally behind him. When we think of a military leader, we would think of someone who is like Othniel, one who is strong, one who is decisive, one who wields a sword with great dexterity and ability with that right hand of power. The right hand is a regal hand. The right hand is a hand of strength and authority. Exodus 15, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 6, or Isaiah 62, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. And yet everything about Ehud, because of his appearance, is unexpected. He's sort of the antithesis of what you might think an effective leader should be like. Even the name of Ehud's tribe, Benjamin, reflects this irony, son of the right hand. Alec Moitier in his commentary says that his withered hand fitly represents a conquered people. If you notice, as we read, it's difficult to tell from the text at what point Israel considered Ehud their leader. Was it Ehud and his fellow Israelites who worked together to collaborate on this plot? Or instead, did Ehud just offer to go along with them, to go along with those who are carrying tribute? Did he tell his fellow Israelites what his plan was? Did they have any knowledge ahead of time or not? Did he act alone as he forged his own weapon, as he came up with this plan himself? It's not until we get down to verse 27 that we have clear indication that he was their leader, encouraging the people to rise up against Moab. Perhaps it's not until they get word of Eglon's death that they have the courage to rally behind Ehud and fight their enemies. Perhaps they're unsure of Ehud's abilities, and so they wait safely at a distance to see if he achieves victory before they step in to help. That way, if he fails, they can say that he acted alone. We don't have definitive answers to these questions, but clearly Ehud was not the type of leader who was to be expected. And it was this unexpected nature of Ehud with his handicap and his presumed inability to do anything that enabled him to have victory. It was this handicap that enabled him to approach the king, posing no risk at all. Things are not always as they appear to be. Well, what else is unexpected in the narrative? 
Well, not simply Ehud, but the type of mission that he accomplishes. Othniel, again, as an ideal leader, was one who was filled with the Spirit of the Lord, who empowered him for victory. Now, the text here clearly indicates that Ehud was appointed by God, but that same type of formula is different. The picture that we get from Othniel is a, is a decisive man, one whom the people of Israel quickly fall behind. Ehud does not muster the troops and line up for battle to face their oppressors, but instead he uses deception, the hidden message, the left hand, the concealed weapon, the locked door. Not the flashiest way to achieve victory, but it accomplishes its purpose. And it is the Lord who appoints him to this task. It is the Lord who gives victory. It is the Lord who is behind all of this. Well, what about the unexpected weakness of this foreign power? Here comes Moab on the scene as this powerful enemy, sort of as a force to be reckoned with. They oppress the children of Israel. They are forced to bring tribute to the king. But in the end, when it's time for that enemy to be displaced, when God has achieved his purposes, those who set themselves up against the Lord and against his people are decisively removed. I mean, you can picture a children, a child of, of Israel reading this narrative many years removed, laughing to himself at the foolish and gullible nature of Eglon, thinking, why in the world were we afraid of this guy in the first place? He's nothing compared to our Lord. His girth is not strength. It's not muscle mass. It's just fat. And he's like a helpless sacrifice before the Lord. In verse 29, we read that these 10,000 soldiers of Moab are strong, able-bodied men as opposed to Ehud. Now, it's an interesting word here in the Hebrew that captures what our English word stout captures. You know, someone who is stout could be very strong, pointing out to the reader that the Lord alone is achieving victory over this mighty army. But someone who is stout could also be fat and lazy. With a stout person, it's not always easy to tell. Sometimes it's concealed behind their clothing. You see, as soldiers, they are feared as strong. But as soon as their fat king is removed, you realize that the soldiers are just like him. No one can stand against the power of the Lord. No one can stand against his might. And so nothing in the story you see is what it should be. Nothing in the, in the story is what is expected. So what are we to make of all of this? Thirdly, what applications should we draw from this narrative for our own daily living? Again, it's a vivid story, a lot of details, but what are we to make of it all? Well, first, I think, is to delight in the providence of God. You see, it's the providence of God that underlies everything in this text. His providence is clear, not only throughout this portion of Scripture, but throughout the book of Judges, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, throughout human history. There's nothing special about Eglon or the Moabites that leads to their victory, that leads them to oppress the children of Israel. Simply, it's the Lord empowering them to act. It's the Lord who raises them up to fulfill His purpose as an instrument of judgment against the sin of His people. And as we read our Bibles, and as we come across familiar narratives... We should never tire of seeing the providence of God 
as an unbreakable thread running throughout every narrative that we come across, running throughout everything in our life. If we were to remove the providence of God, everything would fall apart. Our own catechism puts it like this, that God's providence is His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. The Heidelberg Catechism states that the providence of God is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with His hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. And so all of these unexpected elements of this story might catch us by surprise. It's not what we would anticipate, but it is all part of the plan of God. And no matter how unexpected something might seem, even in our own life, everything falls under the doctrine, under the truth of the providence of the Lord. Kevin DeYoung, in one of his blogs from a couple of weeks ago, writes this. Coming to grips with God's all-encompassing providence requires seeing the cosmos as a place where man rules. Coming to grips with God's all-encompassing providence requires a massive shift in how we look at the world. It requires changing our vantage point from seeing the cosmos as a place where man rules and God responds to beholding a universe where God creates and constantly controls with sovereign love and providential power. The Bible affirms much more massively and frequently than some imagine God's power and authority over all things. The nations are under God's control. Nature is under His authority. All animals fall under His dominion. God is sovereign over Satan and evil spirits. God uses wicked people for His plans, not just in a bringing good out of evil sort of way, but in an active, intentional, this was God's plan from the get-go sort of way. God hardens hearts. God sends trouble and calamity. God even puts to death. God does what He pleases and His purposes cannot be thwarted. In short, God guides all our steps and works all things after the counsel of His will. You can look at providence through the lens of human autonomy and our idolatrous notions of freedom and see a mean God moving tsunamis and kings like chess pieces in some sort of perverse divine playtime. Or you can look at providence through the lens of Scripture and see a loving God counting the hairs on our heads and directing the sparrows in the sky so that we might live life unafraid. What else can we wish for ourselves, Calvin wrote, if not even one hair can fall from our head without His will. There are no accidents in your life. Nothing has been left to chance. Every economic downturn, every phone call in the middle of the night, every oncology report has been sent to us from the God who sees all things, who plans all things, and who loves us more than we know. As children of our Heavenly Father, divine providence is always for us and never against us. We all have moments where we fear what the future may hold, but such fears are misplaced if we know the one who holds the future. The fact of the matter is, all my worries may come true, but God will never be untrue to me. He will always lead me, always listen to me, and always love me in Christ. 
God moves in mysterious ways. We may not always understand why life is what it is, but we can face the future unafraid because we know that nothing moves, however mysterious, except by the hand of that great unmoved mover who moves all and is moved by none. And that this mover is not an impersonal force, but the God who is my heavenly Father. God's people, you see, are to trust in Him, to follow Him with their whole heart, to believe that He will do all things according to His foreordained purpose, and to hope that that final day when we will see the Lord Jesus again, that final day of deliverance is a reality. And so delight in the comfort of God's providence. That's certainly one application that we can draw from this text. And another application is to draw hope from the power of our Lord. You see, here is Eglon, who sets himself up as a mighty ruler, who thinks of himself as a great leader among world leaders, who thinks of himself as a force to be reckoned with. But everything about him is laughable, isn't it? His appearance, his foolish gullibility... For 18 long years, they are subject to his rule and to his power. And yet in an instant, it is over. Again, you read this text and you wonder, why were they intimidated by him? His throne was a toilet. And the people of God will triumph over him in the end. You know, we hear people all the time set themselves up against the Lord. You hear these arguments against God's existence and those who have these perhaps well-articulated philosophical arguments as to why God doesn't exist. And we might be intimidated by those things. We might wonder, how should we respond to those who belittle God and who mock the followers of the Lord Jesus? Listen to Psalm chapter 2. The first three verses read, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Do you see the arrogance of man as it is captured in those verses from that psalm? He thinks that if he surrounds himself with like-minded fools, that he can cast aside the Lord's reign. He thinks that he can mock not only the God who has created him, not only the God who continues to sustain his life, but he thinks that he can mock the God who has sent his own son, the anointed one, to save us from our sins. But notice the Lord's response, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. When we look at the world, it might be easy for us to wonder what is going on. Another nation embroiled in conflict, killing those who who were innocent. Christians violently killed in Muslim lands. Leaders around the world who seem to be absolutely clueless. But our God is not surprised. He will not be silenced. He has a plan and his son will be exalted for all the world to see. All the nations of the world are his. 
The world is His possession. And on that great day when our Lord returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Any who set themselves up against the Lord are fools, according to Psalm 2. And they are as laughable as stupid Eglon. And what comfort you see as ours as His redeemed people. What comfort is ours to dwell upon the reality of that great day to come. All those who set themselves up against the Lord God and His people will be swept away in judgment. All those who curse His name, who speak arrogantly against Him, will have their mouths silenced. What comfort and what hope is ours in the powerful and just God who reigns over all? Another application, worship the Lord. Worship the Lord for salvation is from Him. See, this is really a theological narrative about the foolishness of idolatry and the importance of worshiping the Lord God at every point in life. The idol has no substance to it. The idol is deaf and dumb. It cannot move. It's powerless because there is nothing behind it. And what we see in Eglon is that you become like that which you worship. Powerless, foolish, naive, under the sword of divine wrath. And notice how the text not only masterfully captures the naivete of Eglon, but the impotence of his gods. In verses 19 and 26... We read that there are apparently some sort of Moabite idols constructed, marking off this territory that they possess. Not only does Ehud walk right by these powerless idols on his mission of assassination, while the idols are clueless as to his plan, but he walks right past them after he has slain their king. These false idols simply stand by and do nothing to protect their king. Because there is no God but Yahweh. Anything, anything that we might attach our hearts to for our identity will always let us down. We heard that from from this morning's text, from Ephesians chapter 1. Anything that we set our hearts upon for identity will always lead us astray, will never satisfy. From possessions, to status, to life experiences to looks and health and other abilities that we might have, when those things define us, they control us. And we become like them in foolishness. When you trust in the Lord, the outcome is certain. There's no question as to who is going to come out victorious. And so turn to the Lord. Trust in Him. Worship Him. Delight yourself in Him. And finally, see your need for ultimate deliverance. See your need for the ultimate deliverer, the Lord Jesus. Throughout this text, we see God's plan of redemption. We really see him throughout the book of Judges laying the path for the great judge, the great savior, the Lord Jesus to come. See, if you were an oppressed people, and if you needed a military leader before you, and Othniel stood on one side, and Ehud stood on another, who are you going to choose? When we think of deliverance from our enemies, when we think of deliverance from oppression, we think in terms of worldly greatness. Who has knowledge? Who has skills? Who has charisma? Who has the power to deliver? Othniel makes perfect sense, humanly speaking, but Ehud does not. No credentials to speak of. Devious and deceptive in his assassination from the tribe of Benjamin, and yet used of the Lord 
And it's actually because of his weakness that he achieves victory. And in that, he points us to the great suffering servant of the Lord, whom we read of in Isaiah chapter 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So you see, Ehud achieves victory single-handedly for the children of Israel. Jesus achieved victory alone, abandoned by all, helped by none, and he crushed our enemies through his own weakness, just like Ehud. Who would have predicted that when the great judge himself came to earth, that he would take on flesh and come in weakness, that he would come in such humility, in such a lowly state? Who would have predicted that in the ultimate act of weakness and being handed over to sinful men who nailed him to the cross, stripped naked for you and I, suffering, bleeding, seemingly defeated, who would have predicted that the outcome of that event would be the salvation of our souls? It's really Jesus who is the unexpected deliverer. The Lord knows what we need and provides exactly what we need in the way that is best. God truly chooses the weakness of the world to display his strength and to shame the strong. Dale Davis, in his commentary, he says that the story is sad in the long run. If you go on to chapter 4, verse 1, we read that the sons of Israel again did evil in the eyes of Yahweh when Ehud had died. Ehud is not an adequate savior. He could not change the hearts of Israel. He could not release Israel from the bondage of sin or rip the idols out of their hearts. Our real bondage does not consist of Moabites or fat kings or physical and economic oppression. No left-handed Savior can break us free from our tyrant. But there is one with nail-scarred hands who can, who can and who does. The only tragedy in our story will be if, having this Savior, we do not cry to Him for help. For Yahweh has raised up for us a Savior, Jesus, who shall save His people from their sins." He shall save his people from their sins. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your great plan of redemption, for the way in which all of these hundreds of years before the coming of your eternal Son to this earth, we read of your great plan, the way in which you are going to send your Son in weakness and in humility to bear the weight of the law, to take uh, the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself, that we might be free, that we might be redeemed, that we might be a people free from oppression, from the penalty of sin. And may we, throughout our week, look ahead with longing anticipation, with hope and with comfort, the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, at the end of the age, that when we see him, we shall be like him. 
And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.